Luke 6.20 And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and heap insults on you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. We have in this section uh, four beatitudes, four statements of blessedness, and then four curses or four woes. And these are in contrast to each other. Um, For example, in the last part, the fourth blessed um, beatitude in verses 22 to 23 is that blessed are you when men hate you, but then in verse 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Just the opposite kind of expression. Now let's examine what he's doing here. In verse 20, it says he's turning his gaze on his disciples, and he began to say, when he's addressing his disciples, we note that in 6.17, Luke 6.17, it says there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, so forth. There seems to be two big groups here, and it's the one group, his disciples, that he is addressing. These are the ones who make a claim. These are the ones who are following him and know of him. They want to know more about him. In that sense, they are his disciples. We know in the Bible that the Bible uses the word disciple for both true disciples and false disciples. It uses the word believer for true believers and false believers. And various other terms are used for both the true followers and then the false followers. This is the way the Bible speaks. One clear example of the term disciple used for both true disciples and false disciples is the twelve disciples. The twelve disciples are apostles. Eleven of them were true, but one of them was false. Yet, many times the scripture calls him a disciple, calls him uh, an apostle. Matthew 10, 1-4, he's called a disciple, and even in this passage, likely, he is there in the audience as a disciple. So, he turns to those, in other words, who claim the faith. Whether or not they truly believe it, he's turning his attention to those who claim the faith. Because often, more people claim the faith than truly believe it. Few people truly believe it, and everybody claims it. Everybody alleges that they are Christians and believers in Christ. The first beatitude is in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor, he says. In Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And in this case, Jesus is using this expression, the poor, in reference to um, their spiritual poverty, and that is the primary focus. He's not saying that because you are poor, 
you will go to heaven. Or the opposite, because you are rich, you will go to hell. He's talking about the poor, physically poor, who are also spiritually poor. If the physically poor will consider themselves spiritually poor, then they will go to heaven. In the same way with the rich. If the rich consider themselves spiritually poor, then they will go to heaven. But if they don't, and they're smug and, and proud with their riches, and do whatever they want, and don't care anything about the kingdom of God, then they're not going to heaven either. God's not against rich people per se, and He's not against poor people per se. He's against anybody who's proud. If he's in poverty and he steals, he cheats, he lies, he does whatever he wants in covetousness and greed, then he's also lost. Or if the rich do the same thing in, in order to attain their riches and then to put their confidence in riches, they also are lost and they will go to hell. So it doesn't matter, rich or poor. And for examples on what the, the Bible says about the rich and the poor, we have examples of the rich, for example, in Luke. Luke 18, 9 to 14, we have the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collectors were relatively rich compared to the others because they did a lot of cheating in the collection of taxes and that's how they accumulated a lot of wealth. But in Luke 18, 9 to 14, it is the tax collector who's unwilling to look up to heaven. He's beating his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's a rich man. Also, in Luke 19, 1 to 10, we have Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He did exploit people, but upon his conversion, he commits to not exploit people anymore. And in fact, give his riches to the poor to help out the poor. Uh, other example in Luke would be Luke's addressee, Theophilus. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he addresses Theophilus, the addressee or the recipient of this book, as most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus. If we check the references in Acts, Acts 23, 26, 24, verse 3, and 26, 25, we find that these were Roman officials. Roman officials would naturally be wealthy. Compared to the common man, they would have had wealth. So Luke and Jesus are not preaching against riches per se. And they're not actually saying poverty per se is a great thing either. They're not doing that. They're talking about how if you are poor physically and you are poor spiritually, you realize that and you repent, then the kingdom of God belongs to you. That's what he's doing. I have to say it this way because these days with Marxism, socialism, liberalism, it has many names. People say, and even within Christianity, people say that rich people automatically are accursed and there's no hope for them. All you need to do is exploit them, take their money away from them, throw them in prison, kill them, slaughter them, do whatever you want with rich people, and then give it all to the poor people because that's what life is all about, really. That's what the gospel is all about. They say the gospel is all about making poor people get the rich man's money. That's what they say. That's Marxism, liberalism, socialism. That's wrong. That's not biblical. They take biblical verses like this one, Luke 6.20, out of context mm -hmm. to teach that because you are poor, automatically you have God's favor, which is not true. God, a perfect example of this is James chapter 2, 14 to 26, where he speaks of 
true faith producing works, good works. And he uses two examples. He uses the example of rich Abraham, who had faith and manifested in works. And then he used the example of Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot, and a woman at that. And a foreign woman, a Canaanite. So he used that example to say, even Rahab demonstrated her faith by her works. So she repented and believed and demonstrated that by her life. She wasn't practicing harlotry after that. In fact, she married and became an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Rahab did. So God's not against either the rich or the poor. He is against anybody trusting in their sin and loving it without faith and repentance. That's the problem. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. And he's going to contrast it, the poor in verse 20, and then condemn the rich in verse 24, because they are comfort, comfortable and smug in their riches. So, verse 21. He uses another analogy. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So in these two cases, they hunger and they cry now. They hunger and they cry now. Yes, there are poor people who are hungry and they cry. And they cry out to God for help. Like the widow in, in Luke 18, 1 to 8, she cries out for justice because nobody is helping her. She cries out incessantly to the unrighteous judge to ask for help. Nobody's helping her. So she has problems with, with uh, hunger, poverty. She's weeping, likely. And all of this is the case with her. But what is the example that Jesus uses? He uses that example to teach that we sh should persistently trust God to supply our needs and to help us. This is just like uh, Matthew 6, 25 to 34, when he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So, the hungry and the weepers of today are blessed because they put their hope in the future. They put their hope in the day of judgment. They put their hope in the time that they meet Christ face to face. They believe the gospel. So, in that sense, now they will be satisfied. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35, he said. So right now they will have spiritual satisfaction and ultimately they will be freed from all of the afflictions and miseries of life, whether it's hunger or whether it's crying or anything like that. A day will come when they will laugh as well. They will laugh. The wicked will weep, but the righteous will laugh. Matthew 8.12, Matthew 8.12, But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These people are content now. They're comfortable now. They're happy now. They laugh now. But in that day, the sons of the kingdom, that is the kingdom of the devil, the wicked kingdom of darkness, they will go into outer darkness and they will weep and gnash their teeth. But the righteous, according to Revelation 18.20, they will laugh. They will have joy. Revelation 18.20 When Babylon the Great falls, Revelation 18.20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, 
because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. It says to rejoice. Heaven, saints, apostles, prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Babylon the Great falls, and we are happy about it. We laugh about it. Revelation 19, 1, 1 to 10 also says the same. This is the passage of the fourfold hallelujah. We praise God and we shout hallelujah because God has delivered us from this present evil age, ultimately and finally, but then He inflicts punishment on our persecutors and all the wicked people. So this is the sense that Jesus means that we will laugh. We will one day, we will laugh. Verse 22. Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and heap insults upon you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. And uh, this fourth blessing is upon us because men hate us, they ostracize us, they heap insults on us, they spurn us as evil, not because we do evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Because of our allegiance to Christ, because we pursue righteousness, we speak the truth, we live the truth, we do that as faithfully as we can, and we associate with the name of Christ and say, Christ taught me not to lie, not to cheat, not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to worship idols, things like that, not to profane His name. Christ taught me not to do that, I'm not going to do that. And then if they start to hate us, ostracize us, heap insults, and spurn our name, then okay, let it be. Because we're doing it for the sake of the Son of Man. We're doing it for the sake of Christ. It's okay. In fact, Jesus commands us. Notice verse 23 is the command. Be glad. Be glad when they do that. He didn't say, consider gladness. He didn't say, try it, you might like it. He didn't say that. He said, be glad. It's a command to be glad and leap for joy. That's when, we, when, when people are persecuting us and insulting us, we shouldn't be in misery. We shouldn't be moping and groaning. We shouldn't be moaning. We shouldn't be complaining. We shouldn't be saying, oh Lord. We shouldn't be losing our hair or having our hair turn gray. That shouldn't be happening. Not at all. In fact, the opposite. We should be rejoicing. We should have a smile. Be glad and leap for joy. Because we think about the consequence. We think about the result. What will happen? Your reward in heaven is great. Your reward in heaven is great. There is a greater reward to those who are more faithful to Christ. And that, that reward will await us. And besides that, we will have heaven itself, which all of our persecutors will not experience at all. And also, be reminded you're not the only one. You're not even the first one. You're not the only one and you're not the first one to be treated this way. In the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Their fathers treated the true prophets, the righteous prophets, the prophets of God in the same way. And the prophets, yes, they had a special office, but they did not have a special experience. Their experience of suffering is also our experience of suffering. 
This is what James teaches us in James chapter 5. In James 5, 17 and 18, he teaches us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah the prophet, he, he was a man with a nature like ours. So because we share a human nature and now also a redeemed nature, we have a like experience. So it's okay. Don't worry about it. People in the past, the prophets of the past have suffered. Both righteous men and women of all sorts have suffered. They stood up for the, the, the truth and they suffered. So don't, don't worry about it. Instead, be happy. It's a command to be happy. Okay, now the four woes. 24 to 26. Four woes. A woe is not merely uh, like a woe stop or pause or anything like that. It's a, re it's a real pronouncement of a curse and misery upon people who are this way. This is what a woe is in the Bible. When he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. He's talking about rich people who are comfortable, who are happy, who laugh a lot, who have all of the ease and luxuries of the world. They have everything that they could ever want. And Jesus is saying, Woe to you, a curse is on you. Because you trust in them. You don't trust in God. You don't believe in God. You don't follow the ways of God. You, you won't turn from your sin. And your comfort, the comfort that you have now, is the comfort you will have in full. Because on the day of judgment, there will be no comfort. In fact, Matthew 8, 12, again, in that place, he will cast them into outer darkness, and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're not going to have any comfort then. They're going to have misery. They're going to have torment. This is the, the, the outcome of the rich because their riches blind them. Their riches make them so intoxicated, they can't think properly. They can't speak properly. They know what reality is for a moment here or there. They know what the true reality is, but they are so often getting drunk on their riches that they can't think straight. And this is why he says, you get comfort now, but you're not going to get it later. Verse 25, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Here too, a contrast with the, the Beatitudes earlier. He's saying, if you are well fed now, a day will come when you will be hungry. Now, uh, a token of this is in Luke 16, 16, 19 to 31. We know of this. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees who were lovers of money. They were lovers of money, Luke 16, 14. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. They were laughing and scoffing at him now. And in contrast, he says, he goes on in verse 19 to explain about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he had his comfort now. He died, and it says in verse 23, In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And then what does he want? He wants some of food and, and water. Look at verse 24. It says, He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. This is what Jesus meant when He said, You're well fed now, but then you, you will be hungry. 
you will be hungry. And the same thing with the laughing now and the mourning and weeping later. Yes, they laugh now. They laugh about all kinds of things because everything is handed to them. They have all the wealth that they need and could ever want and a hundred times more than that. They have everything. They have everything. But Jesus is saying that you're happy now, but you will be in sad misery on that day of judgment. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, don't let these things deceive us now. Why does Jesus talk like this? He talks like this and tells us this because it's the reality, number one. The Bible is true, and on the day of judgment, which is a day of reckoning, all accounts will be settled, and whoever is indebted to God, he will pay the penalty for that. That will happen. So it's true, number one. But number two, it's meant for our own encouragement and perseverance. It's meant for our own encouragement and perseverance. Because we can get perplexed and confused. We can be demoralized when we see that things are not happening our way. Things are not going the way we expected. And we see other people, they have all the, that they want. They seem very happy. They have, all the, they have the houses, the cars, the, the suits, the clothing, the jewelry, everything that they would ever want. They have all of that, and nothing seems to be going wrong with them. So we wonder, is the, is the Christian life worth it? Am I doing the right thing? Did I believe in the right gospel? That, and then also people will find a, another church. If, if the gospel that they're hearing is too hard for them, they'll go and find another church. And they'll say, let me find a church where it's easier. And whenever I hear anything from the pulpit, he tells me that I'm a swell chap. I want him to tell me that I can earn $10 million. I want him to tell me that I can be wealthy and, and have just a little bit of religion and I'll be just fine in the sight of God because most people are headed to heaven anyways. Or at least most Christians are headed to he heaven anyways. Most people who claim Christianity are headed to heaven. That's the kind of preaching that they want to hear from the pulpit. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. It's the very opposite of that. So it's meant to encourage us. But it's also, it's also meant to give us an idea of whose side we're on. And this is verse 26. Verse 26 is in contrast with verses 22 to 23. Verse 26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. The righteous prophets had people persecuting them. The false prophets had all of the wicked unbelievers. That's what he means by all men. Everybody were, was praising them. They're saying these are great men. We should follow them. They're teaching the truth. And Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they had to face these kinds of false prophets because the people would turn against Jeremiah and accuse him of telling lies when actually the false prophets were telling lies. And he was one of the lone voices. He wasn't the only voice, but he was one of the rare voices crying out and calling on the people to repent of sin. But what did people do to Jeremiah? What did they do? They tried to kill him. They tried to murder him. They threw him into a well, a, a, a deep pit that was muddy at the bottom and he was about to uh, sink into the mud 
and die. But God miraculously delivered him. And even when he was preaching against fleeing Judah, he said, don't flee Judah. He told the remnant of people there, the remaining people there, don't flee Judah. Stay in Judah and the Babylonians won't do anything uh, bad to you. They won't chase after you because God has ordained for the Babylonians to come and take over Judah. But what did those people do? They said, no, you're telling a lie, Jeremiah. We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to flee to Egypt. And they even kidnapped Jeremiah. They kidnapped him and took him to Egypt with them. And then Jeremiah preaches a message against those people who kidnapped him and said, you fled to Egypt because you were fleeing from the Babylonians. God is going to send the sword of the Babylonians into Egypt and you're all going to get massacred over here. You thought you could escape the judgment of God, but that's not possible. But that's the kind of mistreatment that happens. People who are false will go after false prophets and speak kind words and smooth words, uh, slippery words, anything that, to sugarcoat the issue. They will do that. People who want sugar-coated religion will go to sugar-coated preachers. This is the way it works. And the sugar-coated preachers know how to attract sugar-coated people. That's what they want. They know what to do. They know how to put on a show. And they know that many people want to see a show. But what's the key? In verse, the contrast between 22, 23, and 26. If you are following the true prophet, you will be mistreated, you'll be ostracized, you'll be slandered. This is what will happen. But if you're following the false prophet, then what will happen? Everybody's going to like you. You're going to have a big crowd of people following the, the false prophet. Everybody's going to like it. This is the thing that Jesus is teaching us. And we can know. So don't be discouraged when there's just a few. True, sincere, who want to follow God. Don't be discouraged by that. In fact, it's a sign that we're doing the right thing. As long as we're faithful to the Word, as long as we're faithful to the Word, we're not living in sin, then the sign of a few people is a sign that we're doing the right thing. Next, 27, verses 27 to 36. In this section, he's going to exhort us to patience and not to seek personal revenge. In 27 to 36, he exhorts us to patience, not personal revenge. But I say to you who, are, uh, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. In this case, he may be still addressing his disciples or he may be trying to broaden it to the other group, the great throng of chapter 6, 17. Whatever the case, he's teaching, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. We will have many enemies who mistreat us on a personal level. They'll say bad things, they'll say wrong things, but it doesn't mean that we should retaliate, we should retaliate and say something evil or wrong, false about them. If they say something false about us, we should not say anything false about them in order to smear their name, in order to defame them. They are defaming us, but we shouldn't defame them. This is the sense in which we love them and do good to them. We practice self-restraint, self-control. We don't berate them. 
If they are sinning, of course we can talk about their sin, expose their sin, but we cannot mistreat them as they mistreated us. This is the sense in which we should love our enemies. And 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So bless them and pray for them. Pray that they repent of their sin. Pray that somebody intervenes. Pray that somebody, they won't listen to us, but maybe somebody else will cross their path and that they'll listen to that person and repent of their sin. So pray for them and bless them in that way. And even when, verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now, in this case, he's talking about personal persecution and mistreatment. If they do those kinds of things to us, then bear with it. Bear with it. If they're going to persecute us because we follow Christ, then just bear with it. When they are coming and doing that, they're not killing us, right? They're taking things away from us. Okay, you want to take my shirt? Okay, I've got another one here. You want another one? Go ahead, take it. I don't care about my shirts. doesn't matter. You do what you want. This is what he's talking about. He's not saying we cannot seek for justice. He's not talking about that. He's talking about bearing up patiently when we are mistreated and people do those kinds of things to us. Then 31. This is a key verse. And just as you want men to treat you, treat them in the same way. You know, if somebody were coming to steal our shirt, and that's all it was, let's just say to steal our shirt, uh, would, we, uh, would it be right to get a hammer and start hitting him, or get a knife or a gun and then shoot him to death? Would it be right to do that? Keep in mind, we're just talking about he's just stealing the shirt, and that's all. That's all he's doing. Am I in my house? No. <laughs> if you're in, yeah. yeah, it depends on whether you're in the house, whether it's in the dark and all that. Okay, so all, all of those other contingencies aside, let's just say that's all he's doing. It would not be right for us to, to take a gun to him or a knife to him or whatever. It wouldn't be right. And if we were in that situation, stealing, we wouldn't want anybody to overreact either. Right? We, we would want them to treat us in the right way. So, just as you want men to treat you, treat them in the same way. In other words, he's talking about equal justice or just retribution. Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is equal justice. But um, ten eyes for an eye, right, is, is not equal justice. So, He's talking about, consider, as the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, how exactly you would want to be treated if you were doing something. Now, if somebody is threatening your life, of course, what would you do? You would defend yourself against him. But in this case, he's just talking about this, this truism that we should treat others as we would want to be treated. Okay, then... Verse 32. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Now, 
in this case, it's easy for friends to tell each other that they are great people. Hey, great to see you, nice to see you. It's easy for that to happen, to pat each other on the back. You did great today. Oh, yeah, you did too. It's easy to do all of that. But it's harder to practice discipline, self-control, and patience when somebody is in your presence that you don't normally uh, like to have around in your presence. Then your patience is tested. Your self-control, your, your um, endurance is, is tested in those circumstances. So in those cases, even when you meet somebody who's not normally your friend, be kind to him. Be pleasant with him. Treat him the best that you can, uh, considering the circumstances. Do the best you can to treat him that way. Then you will be different. Then you will be exceptional. Not because you are flattering him. Don't flatter him. And not because you are pretending. You're just treating him kindly. There's a difference between pretension and treating somebody kindly. And often you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference when somebody's being flattery uh, uh, and practicing pretension, just not being real and saying too much or uh, of this or that about the other person who's his enemy and he doesn't really mean it. There's a difference between that and just treating him kindly. So consider treating our enemies kindly or even those people who are not going to tell us good things about ourselves. Then, uh, 34, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. The best example, probably most common example also, of this would be the Good Samaritan, which is also in Luke, Luke chapter 10. Normally, the Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. They did not care for each other. They did not look after each other. They were enemies. They had hostility. But in Luke 10, 25 to 37, we have a lawyer who tests Jesus and asks him, who is my neighbor? First he asks what he needs to do for eternal life, and then he asks who his neighbor is, and then Jesus announces this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what do we have? We have a Samaritan who sees an injured Jew who was robbed lying on the road, and he helps him. Normally they are enemies, but this man's in danger, so he helps him. And the priest and the Levite who belong to the same race, they don't help him. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, give and lend, love your enemies, expecting nothing in return. That Samaritan did not expect anything in return when he paid for his lodging and, and maintenance while he was recovering, right? He didn't expect anything in return. He said, I'll just take care of it all. He didn't even know if he was a believer. Whether, whether the Jew was a believer or anything like that. He didn't know anything like that. He just knew that this was an injured man who was mistreated, who needed to recover, and he was going to do what it takes to help him recover. And that's what he did. This is what Jesus is talking about. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. 
then, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Isn't God that way? He's un- he is um, kind to ungrateful and evil men in that he makes his reign, Matthew 5.45, he makes his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's reign falls and unrighteous, unbelieving people, atheists, <coughs> pagans, nominal Christians, fake Christians, they all benefit from the reign. Correct? So God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. But also... He's kind to us because before our conversion, we were ungrateful and evil men. And then he changed us. Verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. We did not receive mercy. Now we do receive mercy. We had not received compassion. Now we do have compassion. There was no forgiveness before, but now there is forgiveness. Since God dealt with us in that way, we have to consider the circumstances and be patient and kind and gentle, even with unmerciful people, to the extent that it's biblically commanded, be merciful to them, because God was merciful to us. So be merciful. And who knows, God may use that mercy in order to convict that wicked man that he needs to repent of his sins. He may use that. And this is so important for us to demonstrate mercy that our salvation depends on it. These days we hear that this or that is a gospel issue in the wrong way. People use that phrase. But this is a gospel issue. Notice Matthew 6, 14. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. He will not forgive yours if you don't forgive others. And Matthew 18, Matthew 18, after explaining the parable of, of the slaves and the, the debts that they owed, he says in verse 35, Matthew 18, 35, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And what is it? I'm going to send this wicked slave hand him over to the torturers uh, representing eternal punishment. I'm going to send these people away to eternal punishment because they don't practice mercy. They, they claim to receive the mercy of God, but they don't exhibit it towards others. And of course, from Matthew 6 and Matthew 18, this forgiveness is based on repentance. Forgiveness of sins is based on repentance. That's, that's why Jesus said, Matthew, or Luke 24, 46, and repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So let's practice mercy because it's a gospel issue. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that You'll teach us these truths and make, us, uh, make them clear in our minds but also and especially help us to practice them. Lord, it is difficult to live the Christian life, but we know we have you and we have your spirit. We pray that you will give us your powerful spirit to change us, to change our mind, change our values, change our hearts. Keep us grateful and help us to be mindful of what you have done for us.
and help us to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.